in the most simple way right now as we're settling in. There is this liberation through love. I know it sounds a bit grand, but it's possible right now in relating to the body, settling, it's possible to relate in a kindly way, a gentle, caring way. And it's also possible to relate to the body in a distracted way or in a, an aggressive way, irritated way, impatient way. So as we settle in, noticing how the mind, how the heart is relating to the experience of sitting. Noticing all the different ways that the mind is capable of being aversive, even being bored is an expression of aversion, not liking the experience as it is, and also then rediscover many, many creative ways to be relating with the different quality of the heart, the heart that is willing to include the way that it is. We'll begin like we did last week with a simple loving-kindness body scan. So in the most simple way, feeling the sensations at the head, the face, the air touching the skin of the face, the brow, forehead, Noticing the tension in the eyes and the tension in the jaw. Feel the sensations of the mouth, the lips, the tongue. Feeling the breath moving in and out in the nostrils or the mouth. Relating, holding these sensations with kindness. Not forcing, not needing the sensations of the head and face to be different than they are now. So this is a very simple practice. We're relating to the actual sensations in the face and throughout the head, relating with kindness. And even if you notice a distractedness or boredom or an impatience, you can relate to that with kindness and acceptance. Creating space for things to be the way that they are. 
bring that simple loving attention to the neck, the throat, and the tops of the shoulders. How nice it is not to be in a rush, just willing to feel the different sensations at the throat and throughout the neck, and then down into the tops of the shoulders. One of the easiest ways to express a loving heart is to be patient. So we can be patient or allowing the sensations of the neck and shoulders to be the way they are. Willing to be intimate, to be close undefended, bringing this kind attention to both arms and both hands. entire torso, front and back. So we just feel the chest and the upper back, the ribcage. Feeling both the physical sensations, but also any emotions associated here in the chest. Any anxiety or sensations, feelings of grief, joy, Letting it all move, letting it all be the way that it is. And over and over again, noticing how the willingness to be open, the willingness to include the sensations the way that it is, that this is an expression of kindness or love, just basic good-heartedness the willingness to include, to be intimate. In this case, with the upper torso, the chest and the upper back, shoulder blades, sides of the ribs. That kind of tension begins to include the solar plexus, upper abdomen, From the middle of the back down through the kidneys, the lower back. As we begin to open and include the lower half of the torso. Willing to be intimate with the sensations as they actually are. So you might notice how 
having expectations is a subtle kind of violence or meanness. So we can let go of any expectations and instead be willing to include things as they are. Down eventually into the pelvis. Feel the structure of the pelvis, the hips, the floor of the pelvis, the pubic bone, groin. Taking it all in, hip sockets. It's a true act of kindness to be real, to be open to the sensations as they actually are here and now. Not needing things to be different other than they in the way that they are. We're taking the time, we're feeling both thighs. Connecting in a simple but authentic or real way. So there's an, an, an integrity in the way the mind or the heart is knowing the sensations in the legs now, in the thighs and in the knees and shins and calves. And both feet And then eventually continuing by feeling the whole body together sitting, this very simple, resonant, knowing that the body's like this now. Notice how the quality of kindness is very much related to the quality of fearlessness, fearlessly receiving the way the body is is an act of kindness. Not needing, expecting the body to be different than how it is now. A willingness to be close to the sensations as they actually are, the experience as it actually is now. Sitting is like this. We'll begin the loving-kindness phrases. You can repeat them silently after I say them out loud. I care about this life. May this life be safe and protected, free from harm. May this heart be happy and peaceful.
May this body be healthy and free from pain. May I take care of this life with ease and joy. So with each repetition of a phrase, we're connecting with the goodness of the heart that cares, that wishes well. We may or may not have a happy and peaceful heart, but the wish, the very simple, generous wish, may this heart be happy and peaceful, that is real and it's beautiful. So we connect with the generosity of the heart that is willing to have this wish. So again, I care about this life. May this heart, this life, be safe and protected, free from harm. May this heart be happy and peaceful. And may this body be healthy and free from pain. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. I do care about this life. May this life, this heart, be safe and protected in all ways. And may the heart be happy and peaceful. body be healthy and free from pain. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. Let's say this set of phrases or your own set of phrases a few more times on your own. coming back to the phrases. Very simple. To trust the wholesomeness of sending out that wish to this life right here.
be willing to begin again and again. And we can reflect that I care about this life, how natural it is to care about this life, to care about the heart, the body. And just as I care about this life, all my loved ones, those beings easy to love, those beings who've been there for me in this life, they also care about their life. Their life is dear to them. So let's bring to mind somebody easy to love. Whoever, whatever being comes to mind. Could be a niece, a nephew, a granddaughter, a grandson, a dear, dear friend or mentor. And as we bring them to mind, and don't worry, just bring somebody to mind. We're recognizing that they hold their life dear in the very same way that we hold our life dear. They wish for happiness in the same way that we wish to be happy and safe. We just allow our heart to open this natural wish. May you be safe from harm. May you be protected. May your heart be happy and peaceful. May your body be healthy and free from pain. And may you take care of yourself with ease and joy. I care about your life. I care about your heart. May you be safe and protected, free from harm. May your heart be happy and peaceful. Be healthy, free from pain. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. So let's continue in silence for a couple minutes. You might want to repeat the person's name from time to time to help sustain this felt sense of this person.
there is room for creativity in the loving-kindness practice. Coming up with your own phrases could even be just one word that is repeated. Something simple like love as you bring the person to mind. Because the real object of attention is the actual feeling of kindness in the heart or warmth this basic goodness of the heart radiating out feelings of concern and love and well-wishing. So for the last few minutes, just paying attention to the heart, this basic goodness of the heart that cares. No matter how it is that the heart feels right now, just bring the attention there. As if we were literally radiating goodness toward ourselves to begin with. I care about this life. I care about all the beings here in the room with me now, many of whom I do not know. But I do know that everybody here wishes to be safe and happy in the same way that I wish to be safe and happy. I do know that we're all brothers and sisters in this world of birth and death, in this uncertain, changing world. May all beings here in this room be safe and happy and at ease in life. All my loved ones, my family, good friends, just as I wish for happiness and safety, may you also be safe and happy in your lives. May you be at ease. And all the human beings, the happy human beings, and all the unhappy human beings, those in difficult states, I care about all living beings, human beings and non-human beings, those that are seen, those that are unknown, simple creatures, complicated creatures, May all beings without exception be protected from harm. May all beings without exception have happy, peaceful hearts, peaceful minds. May all beings be healthy, taking care of their lives with ease and joy, free from suffering and free from the roots of suffering. So we'll take another minute or so, just feel the heart, the sense of goodness, our good wishes radiating out, filling the entire space of the universe with our simple good wish.
May all beings be at ease. Take some time and stretch out your body if you need to, so you're comfortable. And well, would you turn the top two lights up a little bit more? Not all the way. That's good. Thanks. back everyone. So I'll share a little bit of information. We'll save some time for um, a forgiveness reflection and some compassion practice before we end tonight. So you can uh, get a sense of this other flavor of the practice. Probably some of you at least remember last week that I talked about these four emotions as um, the quality of heart or the shape of the heart or mind that would naturally arise as we experience different situations in our life. So when we're around really difficult circumstances, our own difficult circumstances or another person's difficult circumstance, this wise heart that knows how to connect, that knows how to include, its expression is going to look different when it's meeting suffering than when it's meeting a really happy person or a really confused situation. And this is the nimbleness of the heart that we're looking for. And it's really important to understand, I mentioned last week too, that because we very quickly have a sense that loving kindness is a good thing. I mean, you could interview every human being on the planet and it would it'd be surprising if there were more than a couple that would argue you know, that loving-kindness isn't a good thing. This is a shared value. We may not, people may not be able to manifest it very often in their lives, but most people understand that it's a good thing. Good for them, good for those around them. And so, because that's so, that part is easy, we want to immediately go to, well, then I should be kind. I should be compassionate. I should be forgiving. I should be joyful, and we're sort of short-circuiting it because then we start to imitate what we imagine being kind would be like or being compassionate would be like or being equanimous or joyful would be like. And that doesn't work very well. In fact, in a way, it's, it's really stinky when we're trying to be kind. So we were really interested in the heart, this natural responsiveness of the heart, this natural nimbleness of the heart, 
the heart that knows how to respond appropriately to the conditions at hand. And how do we know how to respond appropriately to the conditions at hand? What's the prerequisite for an appropriate response? Like we're around somebody who's suffering. You know, I'm sure you've noticed that. Um, it's almost like a deer in headlights sometimes, like, I want to get this right. I, I want to say the right thing. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not helpful for the person who's in a difficult place to, like, have a big, hairy need right there, like, I need to say the right thing to you. You know, like, that's such a burden to put on somebody. So what is the proximate cause for an appropriate response? It's really being there. You know, if the heart is really clear, clearly aware, willing to include, willing to connect with what's happening, that's the proximate cause for responding appropriately. You could say the proximate cause for responding inappropriately is to be disconnected, you know, to not really know what's going on. Then... I'm responding based on my preconceived ideas or my, you know, the way my mind's conditioned to think what's going on. And I respond from that. And we do that a lot. We really miss the mark sometimes, where we think. And then we think it's the other person's fault that the way we responded, like, didn't help them. Well, what's wrong with that person? Because... The whole point, you know, would be like, if we really were there, we would know how to respond. And sometimes not saying anything is the appropriate response. But there is a way, and it's one of the great things to observe in another person, you know, when you're just watching and you see somebody who's really in the moment, really connecting, and they respond in a way that you could never have conceived would be the appropriate response, but turns out to be the perfect response. And this really, you know, it's hard for us because we'd like to be able to figure it out. We feel more in control when we have a plan or when we we have an idea of like who I am or what it means to be good instead of letting the goodness arise moment by moment by moment because the heart's connected. It's really showing up. It's really undefended. It's sensitive. It's not afraid. And so then the response moment by moment my moment is coming from that, the clarity that is there when we're not all bound up trying to be kind or trying to be compassionate, trying to respond in the right way. So it's really important, you know, if you're interested in loving kindness and good-heartedness and compassion, which we all are to some degree, like I said, we all value this, then we have to, like from a Buddhist point of view, we have to get interested in cause and effect, not immediately try to be kind, but try to understand, well, how is it that authentic moments of kindness and skillful responding that comes out of kindness, how is it that those moments come to be? What are the ingredients that support that kind of nimble, appropriate responding in the moments? Knowing what to say or not say, knowing how to be with another person. I don't know if I talked about this last week. I don't think so, but this is helpful for uh, seeing when we're 
on the right track or when we get off. There's what are called the near enemies. And even if I mentioned it last week, it's probably worth repeating. So these four emotions again that we started talking about last week, loving kindness or just basic good-heartedness, a natural basic good-heartedness that we can easily access by simply remembering, like right now we can practice, simply remembering, I care about this life. You know, I, I do care about this body. I care about this mind. I care about this life. That's why we're here tonight. You know, probably what got us here is on some level we care about the life that's being lived. That's, that's the beginning of this basic good-heartedness. Now, the shadow, or what's called the near enemy, that can look like good-heartedness, but actually isn't, is attachment. And, you know, and this is true for ourselves, it's true for our close loved ones. We tend to be really attached. It's like I'm dependent on my life, so maybe I care about this life because I don't know who or what I'd be without it. You know, Or same thing with our partners or our friends or our pets. Like, there's that basic good-heartedness, but it's very tied up with attachment and dependency. So metta, this quality of love that we're talking about, this good-heartedness that we're talking about, is not attachment. So sometimes it's nice to have a different word, because with love we normally think of love in terms of attachment. I'm really attached. I really need you in my life. I'm dependent on you being here for me. I need you to show up. That's a different kind of experience. That's that's like a an emotional business relationship. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. As social creatures, one of the things that it takes to be competent socially is how to negotiate this territory. We're, we're basically engaged in a contract. I've spoken usually. Probably be a lot healthier if we did talk about it in a more illuminated, outward way. You know, like, what are we doing? How are we uh, sharing space together? How are we taking care of each other? But that's not love or metta in the way that we're talking about. Because we're talking about it, that it's really more about, uh, this is a statement from Gil Fransdahl, a teacher out in California, motivated by love but not in need of being loved. So the love we're talking about, metta, if you want to use a different word, this basic good-heartedness is a natural, it expresses a natural generosity of the heart. The heart wants to give it away. Uh, back in the 80s, I taught elementary school in a very wonderful little school in the Berkeley, Oakland area of California, and uh, we used to sing this song, I, I'm sure it's popular, uh, so, oh boy, I'm missing it now. It's something about love is something you give away. How does that go again? Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's the basic idea. Even the kindergartners got it. You know, we get that idea that you gotta give it away. That's what it's there for, to give away. Not to extract from others, or not to get involved in negotiation like, oh, I'll be this open if you're that open, or I'll show up for you if you show up for me. Even though we do that, we have to do that, we have to be basically, uh, we have to be competent at doing that 
But that's different than the spiritual love that we're actually interested in. And of course, when we're competent on this social level of negotiating safety with each other, that relative safety we get from being able to do that allows us the space to be interested in uh, a more transforming experience of love. You could call it spiritual love, like in Greek, uh, Greek they call it agape, right? this universal quality of love. That isn't about what you get back, it's really a generosity of the heart. And the thing about that is, and you might even have tasted that sometimes in your life, when you're tuned into this quality of love, one of the characteristics is it's immeasurable. It doesn't run out like the song suggests. It's just the more it moves, the more you realize is there. In fact, that's the proximate cause for seeing the unbounded immeasurable quality is giving it away. And the proximate cause for never discovering that is by holding tight. You know, this fear that, like, will run out. You know, oh boy, I've been compassionate all day. You know, I just need to be cruel. <laughs> That's not how it works. If we were actually compassionate all day, you know, any exhaustion we felt, we would meet with compassion. Because that's what we've been practicing all day. We'd care about this life, being tired. You know, we'd put it to bed. Or we'd give it a good meal. Or we'd go get a hug from somebody. You know, that's how we would respond to being exhausted. Because we've been out there in the world in a compassionate way. We wouldn't, you know, need to somehow do the opposite or take a break from compassion. You don't, ultimately we don't need to take a break from joy compassion, loving-kindness, and equanimity, because as they're, as they're defined in Buddhism and as we experience directly in our heart, they are literally unbounded. They don't run out. And another way this is described in Buddhism, it, they're really, it is more about the what's not there than what's there. So it's not so much like I'm looking for love as I'm uh, relating or practicing in a way that is uprooting the aversive, stingy, tight, fear-based qualities. And then what's left when fear is abandoned? Sense of separation has been abandoned. Because separation is an idea in our mind. We think, because we're not, we haven't paid close attention, we think separation is the way that it is, and how can I find love and respond compassionately in the world, generously in the world, when I've got to take care of myself. But that idea of separation is something that can be put down. Fear is something that can be put down. Anger is something that can be put down. These, what we call these agitating or these unwholesome qualities of mind, are not unbounded. They have a beginning and an end. And this is really important to see. This is one of the ways this is talked about in the Buddhist tradition is when you bring mindful awareness to what we call unwholesome, unwholesome qualities of mind are those qualities that are experienced as limited and tight, heavy, difficult to bear, difficult to be with, right? So by definition, they're unpleasant and stressful. And so one of the characteristics of mindfulness, like when we bring that very clear, balanced, open attention to unwholesome qualities of mind, they tend to fall away, to disappear, because 
the proximate cause for being caught up in negative, unwholesome states is not seeing them for what they are. When, when we see them in, from that balanced point of view, we see their empty nature, their conditioned nature. They're not immeasurable. They're not like the background of the mind. There's something the mind concocts. We have to concoct anger. And it's not enough to have concocted it at 8 o'clock in the morning. If we're angry now, we're concocting it right now. There's no way to be angry or jealous or um, impatient or violent or shameful now if the mind isn't concocting it right now. There's an activity of the mind right now engaged in generating that perspective, that filter or that way of being. And when that activity ceases, then the anger or whatever that negative mind state is, it ceases because it depends on that present moment activity to be there. So, so much of uncovering these beautiful emotions of kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity, it isn't so much like we're discovering it as it is about learning how to remove the causes for these negative qualities in the mind. And the basic cause for the negative qualities in the mind is not seeing clearly. You can just take this as a test, like, is it possible to be angry when the mind or the heart is seen clearly the way that it is? Does anger or any afflictive emotional quality state, can it be sustained for long when the mind is in balance and then clearly seeing it for what it is? So, on the one hand, mindful attention undermines unwholesome states, and on the other hand, mindful attention sets in motion and uh, allows for the sort of blooming of the wholesome states. And you can just check this out in your practice. So when you have just a little sliver of some wholesome state, you're just feeling kind of kindly, or generous, or warm. You know, you go home tonight, you see your cat lying there, he or she's happy to see you, you know, and your heart just blooms a little, you know, just that basic warmth and care. And if then, in that moment, you bring a real, beautiful, simple presence, like the mind is clearly aware that this basic warmth is like this, you'll see that it will really blossom and expand. It will literally, if you do, if you stay with it, it will knock you over. Because the experience of a heart filled with love is, uh, is really profoundly healing. And even on a, that, ther- well not even, but on that therapeutic level, when we touch that experience of universal love, it undermines so much of our deep tendencies to feel not good enough. Because what's left, the residual of having a moment of that expanded love is how good our heart is. There's a great line, I can't quote it exactly, from Walt Walt Whitman. Maybe it was in Leaves of Grass, where he says something like, I had no idea there was so much goodness here. And that's kind of what we realize. And it changes how the mind relates 
to this life. Because all of a sudden, there's a basic respect. Not for me, because it's not seen to be personal. But it's here. You know, it's also here in the heart or in the mind or, but it's not personal. But it, it, we start to feel really good about what this is instead of, you know, really good at seeing what's wrong with this and the limitations of this. Because the conditioned personality is limited. You know, and there are a lot of not so wonderful parts of our particular conditioning of our heart or mind. But when we uncover the universal qualities, changes our attitude quite a bit. So this is something you can check out forever, but especially now while it's fresh in your mind. What happens when I bring attention, this mindful, balanced attention, to unwholesome qualities of mind, like aversion, any kind of negativity? And what happens when I bring this balanced, open, clear attention to the beautiful qualities, these four beautiful emotions of basic friendliness or goodness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Does it kind of open up, expand? Do I get a flavor of the unlimited, boundless quality or depth of that quality? The more we do this, you know, we're really relying on mindfulness. And in fact, the formal loving-kindness practice is basically a mindfulness practice, but it's a very specific mindfulness practice. There's so many things going on in the body and mind, but we're moment by moment, through the use of the phrases and feeling the heart and remembering the person or the people we're working with, we're being mindful of the feeling of loving-kindness and mindful of the feeling of loving-kindness mindful of the feeling of loving-kindness, and you'll find over time, gradually, that you experience more often and more deeply expanded states of loving-kindness, where even though you might have been working with a particular person and using particular phrases, what you'll open to in moments is a kind of love, whether it's expressed as compassion or joy or equanimity or just that basic goodness or warmth of the heart. You're experiencing something that has nothing to do with that person that you were bringing to mind, or the phrase that you just repeated in your mind. So that's that's the sense of universality of the experience. The person you're bringing to mind and the phrases you're repeating and feeling the heart center, they're just clever, skillful means that open doors to what's already here and now but is uncovered. Like one of the lines from the Buddha, he said one of the most repeated quotes of the Buddha is that the heart is radiant and pure, but it's obscured, this radiance, this purity is obscured by visiting defilements. I really like that, that the defilements, the negativities, the patterns, you know, the conditioned patterns or habit patterns of the mind, they're visiting. You know, another image that's used quite a bit in the Buddhist tradition, like clouds that block the sun. The sun's still there, the radiance, the purity. But clearly, we know the experience of being, the goodness being obscured. And we feel terrible. We feel bad. We think we're bad. We think the world's bad because we're seeing the world through the negativity. And we can justify doing really mean things when we're feeling bad about ourselves. 
When we're feeling good about ourselves, we don't do mean things. We do good things. Have you noticed that? When you're feeling really good, something really good has happened to you, like really superficial things, like you get a job or somebody likes you, you know? And then it's like so easy to like other people and to be kind and to be patient with traffic and all these other things in life. But if we're having a different experience, it's very easy to be mean. You know, when we look at the really uh, terrible things we've done where we've hurt people, if we look, we'll see that it was natural in the sense that we, we had been hurt. Our heart was hurting. And in that pain, it's just really easy to perpetuate the pain to do things that perpetuate the pain. So one of the advantages of cultivating the practice is we start to access beautiful qualities of mind more often, more and more often, and then in greater depth. And it gives us immunity from acting unskillfully in the world because we act unskillfully usually when we're hurting. And if we're feeling good, we're not hurting. And we tend to, it's just so much easier to be a kind, generous, happy, responsive, equanimous person, joyful person. Joe Beck has this great image she uses, and I've used it a lot too in my teaching over the years in different ways, but it's just such a great thing because it's a natural image. You know, we all learn maybe in high school science class that you know, water can be vapor, it can be water the fluid in the fluid state, the liquid state, and it can be ice, that hard state. And uh, this is a beautiful, useful image for the human mind or the human heart. Our heart can be like ice, it can be like water, and it can be like vapor. And that movement between those three states has to do with how much wisdom is present, how deep the understanding is. For example, I bet this is true for a lot of you in the room, there have been times when we've definitely been ice, really hard, in a contracted state of mind, feeling really upset, really um, hurt, angry. But something can switch like all of a sudden we realized I was misunderstanding the situation and the person didn't actually say that to me or something like that. And and then that whole construction can fall away and all of a sudden the heart can be very liquidy and even gaseous. That doesn't sound so pleasant, does it? But, you know, expand, expanded and light and, uh, and not hard in any way, not resistant of anything. That's the nice thing about vapor, you know. It knows how to fill space really easily. It doesn't have too many requirements. Ice has certain requirements, you know. It's hard to get ice in certain containers, right? Water's a little bit easier. Vapor's even easier. You know, vapor knows how to fill any space. No friction even. Leaves no residue. And so, this is like how we can uh, just get a sense. And then when we are like ice, notice what wisdom does. Wisdom doesn't have a problem with ice. Wisdom understands, oh, there's ice, and this ice is the natural arising of causes and conditions. It's not a mistake. When we're in a contracted state, 
negative state, a lot of fear, a lot of anger, we can look at it with wisdom and understand exactly why it is the way that it is. Of course it's this way. And you see, that's already melting the ice. When we notice how jealous we are, or how, how upset we are, or how impatient we are, of course it's like this. This heart has been hurt. This heart feels um, abused, you know. It feels like nobody loves me. It's hurting. Oh, it's hurting like this. Oh, I care about that pain. And the more we loosen things up, more of that liquid, the more we can even, like, uh, initially the act of kindness is, it's kind of more massaging. You know, we're massaging the hardness with understanding. So understanding really has this massaging, loosening quality, right? But later, love has a different expression. It's more like just leaving everything alone. Because the deeper states of love understands how beautiful it is, how natural it is. And it's not trying to do anything. But it's not trying to not do anything either. So, Because people often misunderstand this deeper state as a kind of passivity, where we just leave the world alone. It's not individually trying to do anything. It's like, uh, you, can, you can even just play with this. Like when you wake up on Wednesday morning, you can say, you know, okay, nature, world, I'm here. There is a living body, there's a functioning mind, there is this, whatever we want to call this world, there is this world here. I give myself, I give this mind and body all the conditioning I offered freely to this life today, these circumstances today. Because life will live itself, that's the amazing thing. This is more the vapor end of the spectrum, where love is really the um, trust. In a way, that, that actually works even with our very ordinary romantic relationships, relationships with children, even with pets. Like one of the deeper expressions, Rob has a teenage daughter, I bet you touch into this sometimes, you know, where the deepest expression of love is just to let her be a teenage girl, you know, and to, and to just be there with the fear, you know, and the wanting to make things perfect, but knowing you can't, and and just holding that space, you know, letting go. That's an act of love. And we can let go in our lives that way too. That can be a beautiful expression of care for this life. Not trying to control my life to be the best I can be. There is a place for that. But other times in our practice, it's much more hands-off much more about trust. So we want to know this so that we don't just pigeonhole love is this way. There are times when love is very willful. You know, we're really in that place. It's what it requires. But there are other times when it's it can't be that way. It's too much. It's too um, solid. And it needs more of a, a trust. So I want to save some time to check in, and then maybe about we have about 15 minutes to check in, and then we'll save the last 15 minutes to do some more practice. So any questions that you have about loving kindness that have come to mind, or sharings from your own life, and please say your names. 
Jen. Um, what, what really, and I'll speak from my own experience, what really like resonated with me is that you know, kindness or, or positive states of mind, these four states that you were talking about, that that's the natural state of the heart. The thing that's, I, I, it's like hard for me to believe that because it seems like, oh, it's so easy to stay angry and it's so easy to stay upset and, you know, begrudging and pissed off. And, mm-hmm. But then, like, even when it just comes back to me, you know, practicing loving kindness with myself, jeez, this is really hard, you know? That's, that's my experience. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up, Jen, because that's a lot of our experiences, experience a lot of the time. And it is that way because of the conditioning of the mind. So we have a lot of momentum towards being aversive and fear, fearful and needy and greedy. So it seems easier to continue that way because of the force of habit. There's, excuse me, there's momentum. And so when we cultivate loving kindness, we're overcoming the force of habit. It's not the habit. That's why we need intention in the mind, like the intention to bring the mind back to the phrase, even though we don't want to repeat the phrase. We bring the attention back to the phrase, the person we're working with, and we make the mind say the phrase. It's a discipline. It's hard work, as you're discovering. But you, if you stick with it, you'll start having experiences where it's effortless and natural in a way that hatred has never been experienced. Hatred feels easy. The Buddha once said it's murderously sweet because there is a feedback loop to it. We feel so real when we're angry because it's a contracted state and we've learned to associate being tight with being real, like I'm really me. And in a way, existentially, what we're afraid of is not being real. So we'll take the pain of the contraction because it delivers a sense of me being real. And that's the sweetness of these negative contracted states. It organizes the mind. The mind congeals, right? It's got a purpose to vent, to get even, you know, to blame, to compare, to want. All of these agitating, difficult, heavy states of mind, when we look, they're all heavy. And it, they take a lot of work. But it's true, they do deliver some juice. But the juice they deliver never equals the exhaustion of the stress that's involved in them. So what we normally do is we get involved in some negative state for a while, and then we have to leapfrog to another one. Because it gets so heavy after a while, you know. So we jump to something else. And we jump to something else. So, you're absolutely right. Initially, we don't believe it, and it's, it doesn't correspond with our superficial experience. But if you have enough interest to do the practice, formally and informally, in your life, and also just pay attention, like when you are dwelling with angry thoughts, bring enough balance, enough curiosity, like, what is going on here? How is it to be wrapped up in the anger? Is it enlivening or not? You could, that could be like a little wisdom question. Whenever you're in a, a negative state of mind, 
or what you imagine might be a negative state of mind. Just ask, is this activity of mind enlivening or is it deadening? Just ask like that. In a really neutral way, no agenda. You just want to see, is it enlivening or is this activity of mind deadening? And then do the same when you're, when it seems that the mind is um, abiding in more wholesome states. Is this enlivening or is it deadening? And just see what, what your experience actually shows you. Like if it's natural for us to be in more and more positive, wholesome state, is it a product of our culture? Are there places where this isn't so normal to be like, you know, gravitating towards unwholesome states? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say everything is natural, right? Being in unwholesome states is as natural as being in wholesome states. My point is that the unwholesome states have to be constructed. But the fact that the mind is constructing unwholesome states and maintaining them, that's nature. What else would be doing that? So nature, it's the force of nature, the force of habit. Habit is nature. The same force that changes summer to fall causes the mind to get angry. You know, anger, that's like volcanoes when they spew out those, that's like a form of anger, you know, and animals when they're protecting their territory, that's anger. You know, anger is part of nature. But as human beings, we do something with that anger, we get identified with it, and then we proliferate around it. And all of that activity is unnecessary suffering. So that can be seen for what it is and be released. So let's just imagine, I'm not fully enlightened, in case you're wondering, but we can imagine somebody who's fully enlightened and, and then it would be just interested, interesting, like, you know, to sort of push the buttons. Because my sense is, you know, that person is going to experience irritation. Certainly they're going to experience unpleasantness. You know, an irritating person is going to be experienced as unpleasant. The question is, how do they relate to that unpleasantness? Do they add on to it? Or do they just let an unpleasant experience be an unpleasant experience? That's the question. And that's an act of kindness, isn't it? Ajahn Sumedho has some great articles. I sent you, I think, one. Um, and uh, he talks a lot about how he had to work in his monastic training with, you know, here he became a very famous Buddhist monk, and he had a lot of jealousy. You know, Buddhist monks aren't supposed to be jealous, I mean, especially one who's considered to be saintly. And, you know, and he just wanted to suppress it. He was so embarrassed by the jealousy, and he pretended he wasn't jealous, and he would praise the person he was jealous about. And, you know, it just started to stink even more. So finally he realized that he had to turn toward the jealousy. He had to include it. That's what was missing. So it's not about getting rid of the anger, getting rid of the jealousy. It's like including it with loving kindness. Oh yeah, this too. This is also part of nature. So this is the thing about love, real love, metta, is it includes, it's willing to include everything including the warts and the difficult things that arise in our minds, arise around us. We don't have to be afraid of them. 
we don't have to meet the difficult qualities of our mind or the difficult experiences in life with negativity. We can meet everything with love. But not the kind of love we normally think of where we're, you know, the rosy glow. But the love, it's the quality of heart that can include, that sees this too belongs. Everything that arises belongs. How could it not belong? There was something, what was this? But it's just a classic thing that happens in, in, um, in like the Christian tradition where this happened to my uncle actually, uh, my mom's brother, they lived outside of Detroit and they came and visited us one summer. They had, we have seven kids in our family. They had eight. We're all about the same age. We had such a great time together. And then they drove on to Colorado to see the mountains. And, uh, as they were, I think on Pikes Peak or one of the mountains there in that Rocky Mountain National Park, my, uh, they started stepping out of the car and my cousin, who's just a little bit older than me, who was just visiting a few days before, stepped out and got hit by lightning. And, uh, packed her in the car, drove to the nearest phone, and anyway, it's just a terrible scene. She died shortly after. Um, and it was, you can imagine, there were the eight kids, the two parents, and another cousin of mine in that car. <laughs> and we used to be able to do that in those days because you didn't have to have seatbelts on. And uh, you can imagine how traumatic that was. And my uncle and the whole, my whole family, both sides, very Catholic, but my uncle never went back to church after that experience. Because in this sense, like, uh, how can terrible things happen? But the thing that we have to understand is, you know, whether you want to call it God or wisdom, that the heart can open to terrible things. That's what's beautiful. What's beautiful isn't that only beautiful things happen in life, because clearly that is not the case. Really, really terrible things happen. Seemingly, all the time. And really beautiful things happen. And the most beautiful thing that happens is seeing the human heart able to include absolutely everything. When we see that, it's really amazing. See a heart that can include. It doesn't have to shut down because of what's arising. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is what I hear is if I'm suffering, so let's say I'm suffering from grief, and you say, in the moment, I am, a- I am able, I'm creating that grief in the moment. It's not really about an event that happened in the past. It's about where the grief is right now. But what I think I hear you saying is, it's actually a false focus to want to fix the grief because some things take time. So it's here in the moment, but what I need to shift is my attitude about it, that it's okay to be grieving, and that I'm not necessarily going to not be grieving tomorrow, but that it's just okay? So that, I, I, I guess that's, that's the question. If I'm creating it in the moment, how does that relate to things that take time? I mean, if you have, I don't want to talk theoretically, but if I have PTSD, mm-hmm. you're saying it wasn't about what happened. But the, but the, the momentum, like, of uh, the grief, let's say grief, because the, there is a, when we lose somebody, there is a very, you know, it's like, we're not really separate as we imagine we are. So when we're in relationship with someone, like a mother or father or partner or whatever, and then that person's gone, it's like a ripping apart. 
And so that hurts. It's like an open emotional wound, a psychological wound, and it hurts. It's supposed to hurt. That's what happens when we have experienced loss. It hurts. So then, the, so then if we understand that, then the way we transform that experience isn't by getting rid of the pain of loss, because like you suggested, Anne, that's just going to follow its own trajectory, but to transform, like you suggested, our relationship to the loss. So there could be two things happening in a moment. There could be the pain of loss, and there could be the heart relating to the pain of loss in a very beautiful, enlivening way. And both things can be happening at the same time. There could be something that's very enlivening happening in relationship to something that's very painful. And it, it's not incongruous that these two things are happening at the same time. Yeah, time for maybe one more comment. Yeah, Noel. Maybe a little louder, Noel. Well. It's being fed water when it's dry, 
that's the, the rain pizza I eat it. It's been 90 degrees in the and it's blossoming. Without it, it shrivels up. I mean, it sounds so simplistic, but I see it in a plant, I see it in a reaction from something else also which we can't communicate. That's so reassuring to me. Yeah. And if I don't do anything, I don't improve. Yeah. yeah, thanks for sharing the well. Let's just uh, let go of the words and we'll do some practice. Feel free if you need to stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable. Just be sitting for about 10 minutes. I thought it'd be nice to end with some a forgiveness reflection. Of course, we all realize that we live in an imperfect world where it's quite easy to harm others. Sometimes we do this intentionally. Many times it's unintentional. Let's begin the forgiveness reflection by bringing to mind somebody that has been harmed by our actions, whether or not we did it intentionally. Could be something from long ago, from our childhood, or something we did earlier today. Could be a big thing or something really minor. But bring to mind somebody that you've harmed. And imagine that they were right here, standing right here in front of you. And I'll share some words. You can imagine that you're speaking them and then I'll be silent and you can just continue a couple times asking them for your forgiveness. It's not easy being a human being. It's easy for me to get caught in fear and self-righteousness. easy for me to misread. So I'm asking you, please forgive me for any harm, any pain that I've caused you. Please forgive me. So just on your own, as if you were talking to this person, And you can bring somebody else to mind as well, another person that you might have harmed intentionally or non-intentionally. And again, just remembering how easy it is to act out of fear, 
act out of greed, acknowledging this, but taking responsibility for the pain that we've caused and asking for forgiveness. We can go on bringing to mind somebody, maybe not the worst case, but somebody who's harmed us. Again, taking the time to understand how easy it is to make mistakes as a human being, how easy it is for somebody to be under the influence of fear or greed. And then in your own words, as if you were talking to the person, offer forgiveness, something like, I'm ready to put down the resentment and the anger. I'm ready to forgive. As best I can, I forgive you for any harm you've caused. I forgive you. We'll do that for a couple people, a couple situations. Finally, we forgive ourselves for any harm that we've caused ourselves, 
forgiving ourselves for any limitations. I care about this life, this heart, and I appreciate the limitations. As best I can, I forgive myself for any harm I've caused myself, any harm I've caused anybody. As best I can, I forgive myself. Go through that a few times. As best I can, I forgive myself for being an imperfect human being. And feeling the tenderness of the heart and appreciating all of the suffering here in our own life, all of the suffering in the lives of our friends, our dear ones, our family. I care about all the pain of loss, all of the uncertainty and security. I care about the pain of loneliness, pain of injustice. I care about suffering. May all beings be protected. May wisdom protect us always. Wisdom and understanding and love. Just continuing in silence for a few more rounds, acknowledging the suffering in your life and the lives around you, and sending out your good wish. May wisdom protect us always. May the heart be at ease with the conditions just as they are. May understanding and kindness, acceptance, 
fearlessness protect us always. May the heart be at ease with the conditions of life as they are. As you leave tonight, some of you are here with friends, but even so, the, the real trick is to sustain the practice, not in an, a stiff or artificial way, but in just finding really natural ways. You know, you just see things. I saw driving here earlier today, the dead squirrel on the road. You know, something simple like that, which is letting it touch the heart. And if it feels like you want to actually articulate a phrase in your mind, fine, but you don't need to. But just letting our heart be touched. You know, you look around the room, some of you are looking sleepy now, or or maybe some deep feelings have come up in the practice, and that also can, we can let that touch our heart. Oh, she's a human being. She feels things deeply like I feel things deeply sometimes. Oh, may you be okay. May you be at ease. It's not actually a stretch for the heart to connect in this way. And it keeps things really soft and beautiful. And it's really the easiest way to be mindful because when it's a safety, love is a real protecting force. So we're willing to be open when we have a lot of love around. We don't have to cut ourselves off. So it's been really nice to be with you all. These two weeks, uh, most of you know, but in case you don't, the first Friday of the month, we have a loving-kindness practice group. So it's drop-in, 7 to 8.30, always the first Friday of the month, or almost always the first Friday of the month. And we do a guided loving-kindness practice of some sort, and then we just have a group discussion usually after work. So please join us for that coming up. Uh, first Friday of the month, 7 to 8.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.